Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. This past week, we brought you news that an oil company that searched portions of Big Cypress National Preserve in Florida back in 2017 and 2018 for recoverable deposits of oil now wants to move forward with active drilling. There still are some permitting hurdles and studies to be conducted before that happens, and Traveler will be there to see how that all comes together. We also looked at last year's brisk sales of recreational vehicles and how that might impact National Park campgrounds, and brought you word that Zion National Park finally is getting an infusion of money, $33 million to be accurate, to replace its aging and hard-to-maintain shuttle fleet. You can find those and other stories at nationalparkstraveler.org. What's the state of national park philanthropy? The outbreak of the coronavirus pandemic just about a year ago really impacted nonprofit organizations that work to support national parks across the country. Many organizations that rely on retail sales for revenues had to close their outlets and lay off staff. How are things today? We'll be back in a minute to gain some insights into the world of park philanthropy. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to PetreroGroup.com. That's P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. National parks could not function very well without the support of their friends. Friends groups, cooperating associations, and other park-related organizations that contribute dollars, talent, and even sweat to help individual units of the park system get by. In all, there are more than 450 of these park partners who provide more than $400 million in estimated annual direct and in-kind support to the National Park Service. But how are they doing? That's a particularly good question in light of the ongoing COVID pandemic that greatly impacted the operations of many of these organizations last year and could again this year. To find out the state of National Park Philanthropy, We've asked Will Shafroth, President and CEO of the National Park Foundation, and David McDonald, President and CEO of Friends of Acadia, as well as the current President of the Friends Alliance, the informal union of these park partners, to join us. 
Welcome to the Traveler, gentlemen. Thanks, Kurt. Thank you, Kurt. So let's let's just throw an easy softball pitch down the middle. Um, what is the state of philanthropy around the national parks? Will you want to take that one? Sure, sure. Well, the state of philanthropy around national parks is pretty darn good, I would say. We're we're um, I think we're blessed with a committed group of organizations, um, as you indicated, Kurt, in your opening. It's friends, groups, and cooperating associations, but it's also lots of other organizations, including. You service corps and environmental education groups and land trusts and historic preservation organizations that collectively contribute $400 million to the national parks in 2019, which is a substantial uptick from the last survey we did in 2013. And, and so they're, they're a very robust network of organizations. They're doing a diversity of different kinds of work, not only raising money, as you said, but they're volunteering, they're building trails, they're restoring historic structures, any number of things um, to benefit the park system. And as you said, it, the National Park Service would be hard pressed to operate as effectively as they do without them. So I think the, the the state of play is good right now. And they, they come in all sizes, don't they, David? I mean, there's there's the, the big multi-million dollar a year organizations with staffs and whatnot, and then there are the smaller, you know, maybe one or two or a half dozen people that, that get by on, on $50,000 a year or less. That's right. It's it's not unlike the park units themselves. You know, they're so diverse uh, in size and in their focus and in their revenue model, their business model. And, you know, when you asked about the state of, you know, the union right now, you know, the, the pandemic did hit different organizational models differently. So those that rely entirely on philanthropy fared without a lot of disruption for the most part. Uh, those that, you know, get a lot of the revenue from retail sales or, you know, running programs or tours, they took more of a hit. So so it was uneven. And um, I think Will is right. Our community is strong. Uh, folks have been extremely resilient and creative in how they dealt with the past year. But the long-term trajectory is upward. I mean, the trends and, and the way in which partners have grown, both in their ambition and their impact, is really, really impressive. And I, I just want to say some of the smaller groups are doing things that are as creative and impactful as some of the bigger groups. It's not just measured in terms of the total dollars. So it's a really diverse community, and I think it'll continue to, to, to evolve that way. Kurt, do you mind if I just jump in there? I, I want to acknowledge that, that David's absolutely right. The pandemic has hit different groups differently. I will say that I've been impressed by the resilience of, of many of them, even ones that had derived a substantial portion of their overall income from retail sales at bookstores and tours and things like that, you know, have, have done better on the on the philanthropic side to help make up some of the difference. And, and also just kind of had to recognize that here we are, they're going to put a pause on some of those things where they're going to re realize less revenue, but they're prepared to go back in. And so I think you've seen a lot of resilience within the movement um, to adapt to the changing times. And, and it's been really, it's been very heartening to see that. Yeah, I know there's been some retrenching among some organizations and, and you know, unfortunately, uh, layoffs and whatnot. And I guess everybody's kind of wondering what's going to happen this year because we're, we're still dealing with COVID. Well, <laughs> that's a $64,000 question. What are we going to do this year? And, and I think, and as David said that we're we're gonna well first of all we're wait and see and where it hits i think uh 
see how how virulent the the variants are uh, to COVID right now to see how that affects the parks. Um, not only the organizations that we're talking about, but the park service personnel and volunteers and concessionaires as well, whose whose health I think is uh, ought to be paramount. I was pleased to see the park service issue their mask order yesterday and and really looking at the public health effects of their employees and volunteers and concessionaires as first and foremost, which I think is totally appropriate. Um, I, I think we're going to, it's going to affect different parks differently, as David said earlier, in terms of, I think some of the southern tier parks may be able to open earlier and be social distances and the northern tier parks are going to, you know, be later. Anything that requires confinement is going to be less able to be happening, is my guess. I would add that, the, I mean, the good news is we learned a ton last year, the Park Service in particular, they put a lot of time and effort into new protocols, new practices, hybrid models of programs. So that all was done on the fly, you know, in, in March and April and May. And this year we'll be going into it with, with all of that learning. We're also hearing, you know, that from travel and whatnot, we expect the parks to be very busy this year. So, so how that translated into philanthropy and management practices, it, it will be a challenge for sure, because one of the, the ironies here is the pandemic, at the same time it's affecting some of our revenues, it's only increasing people's love and awareness and appreciation for the outdoors. So we wanna make sure those two aren't at cross purposes, but uh, I, I think, I think the parks are going to be busy and I think the partners, it's going to be all hands on deck. It's definitely going to be interesting. And, you know, I'm wondering where are the parks getting the money to pay for some of these things? I mean, they, they've had to invest in PP&E. They've, uh, you know, different protocols. And, you know, I think Yellowstone, you know, several hundred thousand dollars has gone into it. And um, any idea if they've had to divert money from other programs into into these purchases and, and coverage? I don't know, actually. David, do you? I'm not familiar well, with that. Well, I, I believe that a lot of staff resources certainly were, were, had to be redirected. You know, in, in terms of the capital expenditures that were required to get that equipment, I, I don't know the exact source, but, but I know that folks were pulled off of other duties, certainly, to to help adapt and, and, and deal with the, uh, the requirements of the pandemic. So it has stretched the park in, in, in new ways. As, as we all know, they were stretched before this uh, uh, hit, but from an operational standpoint and a staffing and a resources standpoint, it has added a, additional strain. Kurt, I do know that the, uh, the CARES Act did include substantial financial resources for different agencies of the government, including Interior. And so, it wouldn't surprise me to, to think that they actually received uh, contributions through the federal budget, uh, through the CARES Act, to, to pay for those kinds of uh, investments that they need to make during this last year. Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting. Um, the, uh, one, other, one other angle, Kurt, is depending on the park, they may have seen their fee revenue take a hit. Uh, oh, absolutely. Given the, 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 you know, the very slow start we had in the spring. Here at Acadia, you know, we were down you know, 30, 40, 50% early on, we caught up. It, it, it got busier and busier through the summer and through the fall. But for the year as a whole, you know, we were down almost a million and a half dollars in terms of fee revenue collected by the park. So I imagine there are different versions of that around the system. And, and again, it just, it puts more strain on the, on the coffers for sure. 
Yeah, but I think a lot of those funds are Floria funds, right, David? So that those go into a, an 80-20 split, 80% stays in the 20 goes back to the National Kitty. And the previous administration, I think, had prioritized deferred maintenance projects for the use of that 80%. And so what that practically means is that it didn't affect their staffing as much, but it probably will delay investments in deferred maintenance projects that are on the books. I guess the only good offsetting piece of that is the Great American Outdoors Act is a gigantic infusion of money, but it, it's it's this year, especially it's bigger projects. It's not the littler ones that, that are usually funded through Florida funds. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's certainly a different conversation we could have as far as the big parks and the smaller parks. You know, um, the estimated support um, from these friends organizations and cooperating associations to the Park Service increased by nearly 60%, 60 percent, six zero percent between 2013 and 2019. And once upon a time, the, the phrase was that the friends organizations provided a margin of excellence for the national parks. And more and more, it seems that um, a lot of these friends organizations are being asked to what I call provide the bone and muscle for some of these park organizations. I mean, David, you know that for sure. At Acadia, some of the things you've been asked to do with um, your philanthropic dollars. And, of course, the Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation has raised millions. Yosemite Conservancy has raised you know $20 million for the Mariposa um, Grove Restoration. Is, is this um, where the friends organizations should be going? David, take that one. Yeah. Uh, uh, another term that we've used here, you know, in terms of, uh, in addition to margin of excellence, is the bright line, right? We, d- we don't want our philanthropy to cross the bright line and start taking the place of what, what Congress should be funding, the fundamental maintenance and operation of these parks. We, we do try to honor that, but we have to admit to ourselves that there is a lot of gray in the world today and it is not it is not black and white. And so if there are programs that are essential to the delivery of, of the mission of the park service and the unit in which we're working, I think friends groups are more willing to be adaptable. Uh, educational programming uh, is an area where I think we've seen a ton of growth because a lot of groups are really committed to that next generation of, of, of stewards, those who will inherit these parks and be running them in the future. And, you know, at a time when, you know, we saw that capacity waning at the park, we thought it was really important to, to step in and help with that as opposed to standing back and saying, well, that's not our job. So I, I think it varies depending on the resource and it, it varies depending on the organization, but you are certainly right that that increase of 60% over the last six, seven, eight years involves a lot more than just the margin of excellence. Is there a lot of concern on, on your membership about where that's going, what, what direction? I think that membership, I can speak for Friends of Acadia's membership. I can speak for some of what I've heard from some other partners. Members want to know that their contribution is not just making up for a shortfall by Congress. So if it's characterized that way, it it would raise red flags. If it's characterized as, you know, one plus one makes three here and and we are getting leverage and we are advancing priorities that are important to our membership by investing, co-investing a little bit with the park service, I think we'd have support. So it, I also believe that, that partner organizations should do government relations, should do some advocacy while investing their own money, 
also take the time and effort and add their voice to the importance of Congress funding these national parks. So I think it's a package deal. Um, and uh, our efforts in that regard are much more effective when we can partner with group like Will and the foundation and NPCA and others down in Washington. Those of us here in the field don't have the capacity to be as effective as we might on our own, but in partnership with the national level partners, that's a really important part of our work. Kurt, Kurt I might just also add that I think there's a couple other factors here. One is that you know, we have um, more parks are being added to the system all the time. Usage is up dramatically, visitation is up dramatically. So in that same period of time, the visitation went from 270 million to 330 million. And so there, there's more demand on services and it's not like the park service was growing commensurately. In fact, it was probably declining in real terms in terms of the number of staff and the, the amount of dollars. And so, you know, I think our, our idea is that if there's something we can do to either accelerate something that's otherwise going to take 10 years or five years and we can make it happen in a year or two, that's beneficial to more people sooner and to the park resources sooner. And secondly, if we can scale it up, you know, David talked about the education programs, you know, park service on its own might be able to, you know, do X and with the partner community, uh, it might be able to do three X. So the impact of those programs thanks to our help is going to you know, increase potentially pretty dramatically. And so, you know, the other part that I was going to say is that, you know, one of the things that we ended up doing a lot during our, during that, that period of time was we helped to stand up new units in the park system. The, the secretary and the director asked us, you know, can you raise $10 million for Pullman National Monument? Can you raise a few million for, for, for Stonewall? Can you help us stand up uh, Katahdin Woods and Waters? And so those were substantial efforts on our part in response to doing something that the park service was not gonna be able to do on its own because the budget process has got such a long lag time for a new park. It would have been, you know, for Katahdin, it would have been years and years if we hadn't stepped up and helped them to get going. Yeah. We're talking today with Will Shafroff, the president and CEO of the National Park Foundation, and David McDonald, president and CEO of Friends of Acadia and the current president of the Friends Alliance, talking about National Park Philanthropy. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. 
Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. All right, we're back talking with uh, Will Shafroff, President and CEO of the National Park Foundation, and David McDonald, President and CEO of Friends of Acadia. Well, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, we saw some great fundraising leading up to the National Park Service Centennial back in 2016. The stock market's been roaring just about ever since. And certainly, COVID was a, a big hit to those uh, friends organizations and cooperating associations that relied on um, retail sales um, to, to raise some of their revenues. What is the state of giving um, from where you're sitting? Is there um, a lot of money out there that is still flowing to the Park Foundation and available some, to some of these Park Friends groups? Yeah, it's it's interesting, Curry. You wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily expect it, given what's going on in our economy right now with such high unemployment and many of the sectors of our economy really struggling. Um, but there are definitely, um, I, I think, individuals are experiencing. Uh, there's very little travel going on. Nobody's going out to eat. And uh, we've heard from some of our donors, like I've got more money than I thought I was going to have. And, and I'd like to <laughs> do something good with it. And so we're seeing some, you know, marginal increases in the annu the average gift uh, that we're getting. Uh, we're getting, we're seeing more responsive. We had the 50% increase on, on giving Tuesday this year from the, from a year before uh, our year on fundraising was up you know, pretty substantially. And, you know, that was a big question for us is that first quarter, you know, the first, you know, 100 days basically of our fiscal year, which is October 1 to like until January 10th, can we get those checks in from the end of the year? We did a lot better than than we thought um, we were going to do. And that's good news. We, we got to keep the pedal to the metal, obviously, and continue to engage people. But as David said earlier, not only are people wanting to get out in the parks because they're feeling kind of cooped up, but people are tuned back in to their love of parks, you know, in a way that you, you, you understand it because you miss them. And in, in these times, you remember the things you care about most, your family, your community and, and places like national parks. Now, I'm curious, uh, Will, you're halfway almost halfway through your fiscal year, um, October to uh, September. Do you um, have a set priority list of what you're trying to fund across the park system this year? You, know, you mentioned interpretation and, and education a little bit. Yeah. So we have, we have a series of sort of system-wide efforts that we undertake. Um, the, some of the you know field trip programs like Open Outdoors for Kids. We have a, a goal set around the number of mostly Title I fourth graders, third, fourth, and fifth graders, mostly fourth graders that we're trying to get out. We have goals around um, conservation service corps, and you know we're both in number and in placement around the system and and. Uh, we, the, the, the numbers there may be down a little bit relative to the dollars just because of the social distancing requirements that these crews have to have that they didn't have to have in, in years past. But nonetheless, we're putting the money to work. The work around citizen science is a, an ongoing effort as well that we have. And we have a pretty broad-based internship program that we're trying to deploy around the park system. So those are some things that we do ongoingly. And then some of the other work that we're doing on, on more of the natural resource uh, cultural and historic preservation kind of work. 
we've got a whole lot of work around African-American history and culture that we're executing in 13 park sites around the country. We're standing up some work in, in Latino history and culture right now. And then the work around you know, land conservation and wildlife and habitat preservation is work that we're doing to that, that is scalable depending upon the resources that we get over the year. Um, but some of those things like the Yellowstone Cutthroat Trap, we have an ongoing commitment to that. So yeah, we have a we have a long list of things that we're doing across our seven mission pillars. And um, the other thing that we do, Kurt, as you, as you know, is that we provide substantial resources to support the building of the capacity of partner organizations, mainly friends groups. And um, that in that way, we work very closely with David and the Friends Alliance Steering Committee to help build the broader movement, if you will, as well as focusing on individual organizations to, to help them go from where they are to where they want to be. Yeah. Now, David, what really amazes me is is the work that the the friends groups do. I mean, at, at Acadia, of course, it's it's winter time, and hopefully, you're getting some snow so your your uh, cross country track setting uh, folks can get out there and address those trails. You know, throughout the the summer months, you're working on trail projects, you're working on interpretation and and whatnot. Friends of Apostle Islands, they provided uh, toilet paper, I believe, for the park. And um, I just saw reading through the, the foundation report that the, the Friends of Arches and Canyonlands National Parks bought a nine-bedroom house for the park service to use. It's just amazing the diversity of projects that the, the Friends Alliance is doing across the country. It is. And, and that's, that's really been an evolution. When, when the Friends Alliance first started meeting, you know, 25 years ago, it was really to talk about philanthropy, sort of your, your, your main focus of this podcast. And how do we work with this agency partner that we all have in common to, to effectively raise money? But in recent years, that's really exploded to be you know, a, a collaborative space to compare notes and mentor each other and share best practices around all the issues that our parks are grappling with. And we've realized that we have much, much more to talk about than philanthropy. You're right, employee housing is a current real pain point for the park service. And it's a great example. Different groups are taking different tax at it. The foundation in Washington, Will's team has been trying to pilot some, some, some approaches, trying to work with the park service office on sort of the legislative authority. You know, what kind of space do we have to innovate there? It's really ever changing. And, and it's so important that we have the opportunity to compare notes. It's very easy for those of us in our specific parks to get very focused on our little world here. And when we look around and see what other peers are doing in another park, it's very inspiring and it's very helpful. And it really makes you feel part of something bigger, this this bigger park system. And as I said, we all have this this agency in common and, and that's who's, you know, that's that's the third leg of the stool that's missing here. It's the most important one, the, the Park Foundation, the Friends Alliance, and the park service consider ourselves a three-legged stool and and we all need each other to thrive and exist and, and do good work and uh as much as we are trying our hardest to keep up um you know the folks the folks at the park service are doing extraordinary work and and it is unfortunate that friends groups have to exist to to provide them extra resources but uh we couldn't have better partners and we're just really committed to this three-legged stool meeting the challenges that that lie ahead. And I anticipate that friends groups in 20, 30 years are going to be talking about completely different things than we are today. So it's fascinating and it's evolving. Are there any impediments that that stand in the way of your organizations 
Yes, I think that, um, you know, certainly, and again, referring back to the, the Park Partner Report, uh, Kurt, that, that came out back in the fall and that you referenced, I mean, there certainly are bureaucracies and delays and frustrations around, you know, the ability of a federal agency to, to act quickly. And, and, and that, you know, time is money, time is opportunity. And that is a area that, that is definitely an impediment. Some of the hiring procedures, contracting procedures, um, approvals that need to be run up to regional and Washington level, those are impediments. Uh, they, they, they really are. I'm not saying we, we, we aren't good at being creative and trying to work through them and work around them. But the, the, the pace at which work can be done at a federal agency, it's not unique to the Park Service, but it is an impediment and it's not what is the norm in the private space. So that's certainly one. I know, Will, you've, you've probably got others. I've got a few. So, yeah, well, Carl, let me just do me, give me, indulge me for one second here and I'm gonna just kind of articulate. We talk about park philanthropy, but, but there are a lot of different ways in which help can be provided in the parks. You know, we've got volunteerism over here. We've got in-kind donations of expertise or land or whatever. You got cash. You know, if you'd asked me this question six or seven years ago, one of the things I would have said an impediment is to the ability for at least us and many friends groups to work directly with corporations to, to uh, have them find a way to support us. But through DO21 and some other mechanisms, we've, we've gotten a lane to work with. And that, that lane is uh, it's mostly not philanthropic dollars, it's corporate marketing dollars. And we're finding that many corporations are, are, are finding common cause with the national parks. Subaru is a great example. It's not like Yosemite National Park brought to you by Subaru. That's not happening. You know, those messages are not there. This is about Subaru trying to give back to the national parks around sustainability. They, they happen to be a, one of the most innovative companies around waste reduction. Their Indiana plant produces zero waste in the landfill, but they're providing us a couple million dollars a year to invest back in the parks and these issues that help the park operate more effectively. And then David talked a second ago about, um, about some of this work that we're trying to do around housing. And that gets to almost like impact investing. You know, how can we get private dollars to invest in the you know energy efficiency of buildings, park housing, renewable energy projects, where there could be a, a margin there for a private uh, company or citizen to to actually do some work on behalf of the parks and create a uh, a better situation that doesn't require the park to either be out of pocket for the capital or any ongoing operating expenses. And so, I think we're trying to help accelerate the broader thinking, as David said. So how can we help the Park Service transition from where we are right now to a place where we can be open to the different possibilities of, of different kinds of support impacting the parks and the visitors in a positive way? Are you, are you finding it easier um, or, or finding corporations more willing to work with the Park Service or with the Park Foundation? I mean, in years past, we've had Musco Lighting has done some, some great uh, work around the park system in terms of uh, reducing um, light pollution. Toyota, of course, has given some of their hybrid vehicles to the Park Service. I think uh, there was a, a window, Anderson Windows might have given some. And, and so you've got more and more examples like that. And, um, you know, you mentioned employee housing this past year at Yellowstone. Um, Cam Shali had a bunch of... Yeah old, worn-down housing ripped out. I know they've got similar situation at Rocky Mountain. Is it is it easier to approach corporations in the in the building sectors, perhaps, to say, hey, you know, can you guys help us in this this sector here in terms of employee housing? Well, I think that those are big-scale projects. 
And I think that um, I would say that we haven't really had a chance to, to pursue that particular idea in particular. But, you know, I think that for, you know, companies that have expertise to share like Subaru around waste reduction, uh, that, that can be really valuable. But when it comes to actually constructing things, I'm not sure you're going to get much donation there. You might find a way to have a, um, an agreement reached where the housing can be, can be built with private dollars and potentially managed and operated by with private dollars with the park service owing an annual cost to provide, you know, to, to provide basically pay rent on that. So it's a different kind of a business model that I think that it could be deployed. I mean, it's got to work. I know they looked at it at Acadia. It didn't quite work up there for their, that situation, but I think it's something that probably could work in other parts of the park system. And I, to answer your earlier question, yes, I mean, I think the National Park Foundation right now has 70 or 72 individual partnerships with corporations of, you know, as little as $10,000 and as many as, as much as multiple millions of dollars in a year. So we're finding that there's a lot of interest across the board because these corporations find a way to activate against their brand and their values in a way that's consistent with what the Park Service needs uh, support with. David, is that something that the, the Friends groups can um, get more involved with? I know there at Acadia, of course, you've got uh, L.L. Bean helping out with the shuttle system there. But is that something that uh, the average Friends group can, can tackle in terms of approaching uh, corporations to get some help? Or is that above their um, the bandwidth? I, I think I think there is a lot of potential there, and I think groups are doing very creative stuff, maybe at the local and statewide level, that would complement what Will and his team are doing at the national level. I think one of the most powerful incentives is, you know, making the case of how powerful national parks are as economic drivers in these surrounding communities. And so, you know, for for a local restaurant or hotel owner to donate a percentage of their proceeds. You know, I, I know there's some great beers being brewed around the country that are associated with trail systems and things like that. So I think there are a lot of friends groups already doing that and the potential to, to do that even more is great. And, and in a way that doesn't compete with what the foundation is doing at the national level, but it's complimentary. You mentioned L.L. Bean, they support the Island Explorer bus here at Acadia and they support some national level initiatives that the foundation is doing. So. I know the pandemic affected corporate giving perhaps more significantly than it did individual giving or foundation giving. So there was a little bit of a, it was a hard time to ask local businesses to help us out here, but I hope that'll rebound and, and I hope that they'll see it as a very positive investment for the long term. Yeah. Are um, Friends Groups a, a growth business? Uh, I mentioned that because uh, I guess a couple of years ago, Eastern National provided the funding to set up a Friends of the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Um, are, are we seeing more and more Friends groups being created or, or are we maxed out? No, I think, I think it continues to be in growth mode. As important as, as new ones being founded um, are investments in some of the small ones that, that, that have perhaps been around for the last five years who are at that half a staff person level. Those are the ones I think they make the biggest slice of the community when you look at the demographics that that were crunched in that report and and sort of investing in the potential of those groups that can grow from small to medium or medium to large is really where there's going to be a lot of gain but 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 to answer your question i think it is a growth industry both in terms of tapping some of the potential of the existing groups 
that are just getting their feet under them, as well as being a resource for, for new groups to, to start where a new unit is coming online or, or where an existing unit does not have a friends group. Here in Maine, you know, we had a new unit, the Katahdin Woods and Waters uh, created uh, in 2016. And by gosh, that friends group is doing great things, you know, you know, just just three, four years into their five years into their existence. So I, I, I do characterize it as a growth industry. And Katahdin Group, by the way, is, is also a beneficiary of the, the generosity of L.L. Bean and uh, in, a, in a significant way. I think one of their L.L. Bean seniors uh, members of their team is, is on the board of Katahdin Woods and Waters as well. So um, I'd also say that there, there's some nuance here. And that is that, yes, David's right. There are some places that need a, a new organization. But through the work that David and I have done uh, and other members, that was a part of the overall work that included the um, status and trends reports. We were looking at different sectors within the Friends community to see how we might be able to get them to be talking to each other. And so we have established affinity groups to like around battlefield sites. And so those organizations have a lot in common. They're interpreting a similar kind of history. They've got the, their grant programs within the park service they can apply to, et cetera. And so getting them together is one idea. We've also talked about there are certain park units that don't really have enough capacity within their geographic region or within their with their park itself to establish their own friends group with their own individual staff. So there may be a way to have a single executive director that represents four or five different units and have them have advisory committees and individual sites to, to draw on that local expertise. But we're trying to think about this in a more creative way. And, and David and I both come out of the land trust movement early in our careers. And so there's a lot of similar lessons that we learned about you know, these small land trusts, the medium and the large one, that we're trying to now think about how to apply to the, to the friends group sector. Yeah, interesting. Now, of course, um, we've just gone through the, the year-end giving um, cycle. And, and obviously, if, if individuals have a, a specific park that they love, there's a friends group that they can usually contribute directly to to get some uh, other dollars uh, at work in the park system. What about the National Park Foundation? Um, are there any big initiatives coming up that uh, people can um, direct their dollars to a specific project or endeavor that you guys are launching? Well, we are we are looking to launch our next campaign. Uh, you know, we had a centennial campaign that ended in 2018, and we're uh, we discovered, Kurt, that we actually are are better at our fundraising work when we're in campaign mode. I don't know what it is <laughs> like. There's the deadline, the the focus, the intensity, the goal, the set of goals, and so. We're actually in the process of, of figuring out what those big goals are right now and, and you know, our big ideas so that we can kind of market. But listen, you know, fundamentally, we're going to continue to, to focus on these major pillars. I mean, it's, it's more difficult for us to have, you know, 500 specific projects than it is to have a category around, you know, landscape and wildlife preservation, historic and cultural resource preservation, sustainability. And then we can talk to donors about, either a place in the in the national park system or a kind of project they like to do and we can find a place for it that, that allows us to cast the net a little wider than just to pitch a single project. You know, during our last campaign, the Park Service came up with 100 projects for the centennial of the national park. Seemed like a really good idea, but but in, in pitching those projects, we found it was really hard to find a donor that liked a certain project, you know, because mm -hmm. they had their own idea or their own park, whatever. And so, we just found it more effective to generalize and then work with those donors to find a specific place or just have them provide funding 
at a more general level, then we can actually be in touch with people like David to find out, all right, so how do we apply some land conservation money or some, some cultural restoration money to your park? Uh, do you have a, something we can work on with you together? So you had a bunch of donors wanting to give to wastewater treatment plants, I bet, huh? Wastewater <laughs> treatment plants, uh, you know, just toilets in general were always a big hit. <laughs> David, you know, the Great America Outdoors Act is is bringing um, billions of dollars into the parks. Does that, um, that's got to help you a little bit, doesn't it? Because uh, you can per- perhaps redirect some of the funds you have. That's exactly right. I mean, the Great American Outdoors Act is going to bring a great infusion to to Acadia's wastewater systems and water <laughs> systems. And, 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 and that is not something that Friends of Acadia would would be in line to fund. And I I can't speak for all the partners around the country, but I think that it's fair to say we're thrilled by the investment in the deferred maintenance backlog, but we're also thrilled by the ripple effect that will have on other fund sources, not just in the philanthropic world, but even within the Park Service's own fund sources. They have other fund sources, be it uh, entrance fee revenue or line item construction, that I hope that opens up new uses and new projects and takes the pressure off the partner to always be the go-to for some of those projects. So it's going to have a cascading impact that, that, that we're all very excited about. It's, it's, it's a really significant amount of funding, but it's also put a whole nother full-time job on all of our friends over, over at park headquarters. It's a big lift. And again, it's an area where the park partner community wants to help out. We want to be part of the solution. Uh, we want to be able to report back to our elected officials in Washington. This is how we're working together to put put that money to good use that we lobbied you so so hard for. So it's an exciting time, but uh, it's also quite daunting because uh, it's a ton of work. I bet. I bet. Well, David, Will, it's been great visiting today to, to get uh, uh, the temperature, if you will, of the, the National Park philanthropy out there. And, um, you know, six months from now, maybe we should reconnect and see, you know, was COVID a continuing problem or, or was everybody able to overcome it? Yeah, I think Kurt, that's that's very true. I think it's also, we'll, we'll be that much further into the Great American Outdoors Act investments and we'll have a better sense where those are going. And I, I just want to put a plug in for, it's deferred maintenance, yes. And I agree with David, that's going to be things like the tidal basin in, in on the mall or you know the Grand Canyon waterline or projects that are at such magnitude, they wouldn't ever be able to be funded on an annual basis. But it's also the Land and Water Conservation Fund. You know, the Park Service now has permanent funding uh, of LWCF, both the state and federal side that they manage. And uh, I think it's going to open up some new possibilities around land conservation as well to have that kind of dedicated ongoing support. You know, historically, it's been, are they going to get 10 million this year or 50, you know? And that's a big difference in terms of if you're trying to plan for that. And so the LWCF portion of this could, could uh, have a t- profound impact on some of the work that, that we're all doing as well. Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch it. Yeah. Thanks so much, John. Thank you very much. Thanks, Great Kurt. to have Appreciate a chance it. to catch up, and thanks for your work and your coverage of, of the parks. Absolutely. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we'll be sitting down with Yellowstone National Park Superintendent Cam Shawley to discuss not only how his park managed through the COVID crisis, but also what this state of the park is, from infrastructure needs to conservation issues. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck.
The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast series is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.